coming up on this episode of the Work Not Work Show. I also want to find out from the inside what universities are doing and what their thinking is when it comes to teaching people about computers, programming, all that kind of stuff. I see the result of what they do, but I really want to find out the, the reasoning behind it. One of the things I'm really excited about is just the kind of more collegial aspect of it, being able to chat with other, quote, professors, not that I'm on, and just talk it through that way. Uh, For me, it's going to be very much a learning experience. That's Dave Thomas, co-founder and publisher emeritus of The Pragmatic Bookshelf. In this, the final part of a three-part interview with Dave, we talk about Dave's life after retiring from the Pragmatic Bookshelf. In the first part of this three-part interview, we talked with Dave about his early influences and his formal education at Imperial College in London, England. In the second part, we picked up the story with Dave's professional path first crossing that of Andy Hunt, with whom he wrote several landmark books such as The Pragmatic Programmer and Programming Ruby, and with whom he co-founded the Pragmatic Bookshelf. In this, the third and final part of our interview, we talk with Dave about his life after retiring from his life as a publisher. We start with his thoughts on on Agile, as well as the use and value of spoken and written language in the digital age. We talk about society's relationship with the book and whether there is in fact a future for bookstores as we currently know them. We wrap up with what advice Dave can offer the next generation of programmers. And yes, we finally get to the bottom of what's up with that garden gnome and the surprising answer as to who it resembles. Dave, I found a quote from you from back in 2014 with an interview you did with Andrew Binstock. You said you have a pure English language abhorrence to the people who use agile as a noun, as in I do agile. Are you saying that good grammar is a lost art? Uh, No. What I'm really saying is that the words you use actually have a meaning. And in the case of agile versus agility – that meaning has been corrupted in order to serve a marketing need. And I have a whole bunch of talks on this whole subject, but fundamentally, the people that renamed Agile to be a noun are the people that are trying to sell you things. Right. And the, re- the reason for that is you cannot sell an adjective, but you can sell a noun. Right. I found the same thing is as I've tried to write a little more as I've gotten a little older and not necessarily just on technical matters, I find myself focusing on trying to get the grammar right, trying to get the usage right. And it's a challenge because for many years, people just didn't give a darn about that, to be honest with you. It was just interesting that you seem to have focused on a grammatical point, but what you're saying is that it, it was really more a reflection of what was going on in the agile world as opposed to a comment on grammar or the use of the noun as a verb and the verb as a noun, those kinds of things. I'm not a, a grammar Nazi in that I used to be, but I've learned over the time that the way people speak naturally is actually also a very good way to communicate. Mm-hmm. And so my writing tends to be way less formal than most people's writing because I try to be more conversational in that. And that every now and then means breaking a grammar rule. And honestly, I don't care. Right. 
I mean, I used to go through all of our books and fix up all those split infinitives. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I suddenly realized that's stupid because no one, no one actually notices. And it sounds very affected if you – every now and then there's an infinitive that if you unsplit – sounds absolutely ludicrous. So, you know, I just gave up with that. And, and 99% of your audience w- wasn't even going to know what a split infinitive was. Well, that's probably true. Sa- sadly, but, but true. But the it, other interesting thing, I mean, talking about grammar leads me onto vocabulary and English and speaking and everything else. And it was kind of interesting to me that in the middle of what you were saying there, you started to say damn and then corrected yourself to say darn. Mm-hmm. Right. And that is a tendency that I think is I'm not getting at you here. I'm getting at a society which expects that kind of thing. That really worries me because words have a meaning. Mm-hmm. And if you try to obscure the meaning of a word without actually obscuring it, because everybody in the world knows that when you say Don, what you really mean is damn. Right. Right. Yeah. No, fair enough. Right. Yeah. So it's. I just didn't want anybody mistaking me for David Heinemeier Hansen. That's all. Well, there you go. Yeah. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> no, I um, don't think so either. <laughs> but, but, but when people do that, I think what they're doing is unnecessarily devaluing their expression because it doesn't actually change a thing about what you just said. Everybody knows that you said damn. It's more kind of like you said damn and then you put a fancy dress on it and sent it on its way. Fair you know, it, it, it's, and I'm not getting at you. No, no, no I understand. At, but there's this, this kind of political correctness thing that's going on. I don't mind the idea that you shouldn't insult people. But I think if you don't challenge people, then you're not doing them a service. Right? I think particularly as an educator – our job is to challenge people and every now and then to throw them something they're uncomfortable with. And this, I feel triggered, is a ridiculous excuse not to think. The little habit that I fall into is that I, I, I honestly don't know your personal reaction to the use of what some people would call a curse word, right? So I just feel, feel it's one of those things where you, kinda, where you would say, well, I don't really know him. Maybe he would be mortally offended if I said it the way I would normally have said it. It's like there's certain things that I don't say in front of my 80-something parents that I use every day when I'm not around them. And it's just modifying the language for the audience, I think. But I, no, your point's well taken. I think that that makes a lot of sense. No, I think I think there is a. Uh, um, I think basic politeness is incredibly valuable, and I, you know, I think it's uh, something we all need to to work on. But I think there's an intersection or a, a, a disjunction, if you like, between politeness and communication when it comes to overthinking what the other person is going to think. Yes, and I think the real key to communicating is not phrasing things in such a way that you can never offend. The real key to communicating to me is to have that kind of empathy to say, what are the questions that this person is wondering right now? And how can I address them? And how can I ask them to tell me what their questions are? And all of those kind of things. And I think that shows compassion, and that shows empathy, and that shows a need to be sociable far, far more than, and again, I'm not getting at you, I'm just talking about the whole population here, Mm -hmm. mechanically altering your vocabulary so as not to give offense. 
Yeah, that's no, that's a fair fair comment. Before we leave the subject of books and language and, and move on to a couple of other subjects, is you recently tweeted that in the U.S. we're busy closing bookstores, that yet the Chinese are celebrating. They just opened this fancy new bookstore. For the rest of the world, the bookstore is an endangered species, where in China they're embracing them. Can you expand on that thought a little bit? I mean, what were you thinking when you were saying that? I, I think I had a tinge of regret um, and a tinge of hope. My wife and I love China. We spend a fair amount of time there. There is, just down from the Forbidden City, there is a bookstore. I can't remember the name of it for the life of me. It is massive. It is like eight stories. Each story is the size of a football field, and it is full of books. If you go to my local Barnes & Noble, the programming section is now maybe a rack or two racks. Yeah, I've noticed that. If you go to this bookstore, it is, oh, yeah, it's probably half a football field. If you look at them, the books are, a lot of them are kind of structured into various training regimes, Mm -hmm. but they're just general purpose, all sorts of stuff from common programming, Java, blah, 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 to really obscure things. It was just a revelation. The thing that is cool is that the they were it was full of people it was packed full of people yeah and they were all browsing and buying and taking things away it was just fantastic it's like turning the clock back it was like turning the clock back but i don't think it's that because i mean if you, the the people that are reading computing books i mean in china they've all got smartphones certainly in beijing so it's not like they didn't have the option of getting electronically I don't know why. Possibly it's because they are relatively inexpensive compared to here. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even relatively in China. There is some reason that people still like the books. Could it be a reaction to that, that obviously China went through a period where, during the Cultural Revolution, where there was a real restriction on information? Do you think it's all of a sudden the liberalization of access to information is making people just voracious consumers of it? It could be, but then that would argue that they would tend to go electronic more, wouldn't it? I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, what you've described in in terms of the bookstore um, in China, I mean, it reminds us of when my wife and I go and visit Powell's in Portland. I don't know if you you spend any time there. There's an old-fashioned bookstore. It's monumental in terms of size, and it's always packed. Powell's is one of my favorite places to be, and... It's the same kind of thing. It's nowhere near as big as any of the bookstores I've been to in China, but it has the same kind of eclectic set of books in it. And so I very rarely go in there looking for a particular book on some cutting-edge topic. I go in there to browse and relive memories and be tweaked by things I hadn't thought of. You know, So I'll walk out of Pals with five books and there'll be just five totally random, gloriously either obsolete or irrelevant books, and I will thoroughly enjoy devouring each one of them. Well, and I think that, that one of the attractions of Powell's is the fact that it, it – I know there's an order to the way the store's organized, but it seems kind of random to me, and I just wander around. And very much like you do, wander into a section that, frankly, I would never have gone into in a sort of a Barnes & Noble or a – 
uh, chapters, those kinds of bookstores, which are very organized, and you can go exactly to the title that you want. But the joy of Powell's is that sort of very random organization. Let's just talk about a couple of other things. You said recently that deep in your soul you're a programmer, but it seems like you've spent a lot of time over the years doing things other than that, such as writing books, publishing, speaking, teaching, for example. If you had to fill in your passport application with just one of those titles, what would it be and why? It would be programmer. Actually, it would probably be coder. Even though you've spent a relatively small percentage of your career actually with your hands on their keyboard writing code, or maybe I misunderstand exactly. No, yeah, I don't think that's true. Okay. I am pretty much addicted to coding. One of the things I think that used to drive Andy insane is that doing the bookshelf, I would be constantly writing tools, writing updates to the online system, writing everything else. There are literally many hundreds of thousands of lines of code behind the pragmatic bookshelf that I wrote. The, the reason I know that that's, that is at the core of me is that if I'm looking for like an activity to calm me down or chill me out, I will, you know, some people will pick up a book or some people will start knitting or something. Mm-hmm. And I will typically reach for a keyboard and start coding. Interesting. It's my kind of like go-to place to escape the world. Wow. I mean, I guess that really goes back to when you were still in high school. I mean, that, that falling in love that just, that just never quite goes away by the sounds of it. Yeah, it's a resonance, you know? Yeah. On the, uh, on the Pragmatic Bookshelf website, you're now describing yourself as publisher emeritus and retired. Can you describe the period leading up to the moment you decided to retire and what factors were involved in making that decision? Yeah, I need to get them to update that because... Although I am possibly a publisher, I guess technically I'm always going to be a publisher, but the retired bit is not quite right. Oh. For the last, I don't know, for, for two things. First of all, I'm a fair amount older than Andy, and so I'm approaching 60 years old this year. And I never thought to myself that I was going to be running a company uh, that should have been focusing on selling books for that kind of length of time. I basically started feeling I needed a change. In the old days of the bookshelf, when we were rocking and rolling, then I totally, thoroughly enjoyed sitting there being reactive, trying to keep things running, trying to update things as we went along. As it gets bigger and it gets more proceduralized, my average workday changed from being a whole bunch of fun to getting handed a to-do list, you know? Wow. And so I was like, and, and, and it was good stuff. It was high-level stuff. But I just needed a break from that. I needed to, to recharge and to allow myself to play a bit more, you know? And so I told Andy maybe over a year ago that he needed to think about some kind of policy for, for when I went. Because, you know, whatever happened, I would be out of there before he was. And so we talked about that a little bit. And then around about New Year's, I said, okay, this is, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to do it this year. Uh, and the reason for that was simply because I spent the, the Christmas New Year break thinking, well, okay, why, why can't I do that? You know, what's, what's, what's in the way? And I went through all the various issues and all the people I'd be letting down and everything else and tried to think through, would it ever get any better? And the answer is no, it wouldn't. So I gave him, effectively, I said, I'll be out on, 
uh, I think it was June the 1st. And then we spent that six months transitioning. Wow. From what you've said, it almost sounds like you're leaving the door open to go back in some capacity. Or are you done with the pragmatic bookshelf and are now moving on to this next chapter in your life, which we're going to talk about in a second? But there was something that you said there that made me think once you've had a year of recharging the batteries, you might go back in some capacity. I, okay, so right now I am very consciously not sticking my fingers into that pie. I still have all the access in there, and I still get all of the emails on the various mailing lists and things. Unless the, I see something where I happen to have a particular fact that no one else has, and you know, therefore I have some interesting information, I am working really, really hard not to interfere. It would be so easy to still be there as that kind of like, I pop in and, and say something and pop out. I think that would be doing them a disservice. And in particular, Andy... I mean, in the past, it's been the two of us, and, you know, I've had very specific ways of doing certain things and everything else. He needs to basically stamp his mark now, right. and I need to, to step back and let him do that. I think once that period has passed, and I don't know how long that will take, then I could foresee getting back in there, but not at the kind of level I was before. Maybe just as an author. I already am. I mean, I just released an updated version of the Elixir book today. Right. So I've I've been working with our editors and stuff to get that out the door. Right. There is no particular rancor there. I think that during the six months, there was a lot of concern on people's parts about, okay, how are we going to handle this and how are we going to handle that? The reality is no one is essential. And the reality is it's running on very, very happily without me and arguably better in some ways. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I was nervous too, but I'm, I'm very happy to see that everything seems to be, you know, just continuing nicely. Dave, I've described you as, as 60-something. You've said that that's coming up. With a little luck, that means that you've got another 25 or 30 years of life ahead of you. Back in May of this year, you said you, you honestly didn't know what lies ahead, but a little bit of time has gone by since then. Do you know what the future holds for what is nowadays referred to as the third chapter in one's life? Um, I don't think I am entering the third chapter or the golden age or whatever they call it. Mm-hmm. I don't think I am, I'm not retired. I am retired from the bookshelf, but I am still hoping to be actively involved in all sorts of other ways. As I said, I think programming to me is not a job and it's something I would like to do for as long as I can. I'm going to be looking around for opportunities, places where I can do the most good. I'm going to be looking for positions. I mean, it would be totally pointless for me to go and, you know, get some junior programmer job somewhere. A, because I'm probably not as good as a junior programmer anymore, but also because it's not where I can actually have any kind of leverage. But I would love to see, uh, I would love to get more involved with education, which is why I'm doing that uh, teaching thing this, this fall. Yes, I was going to ask about that, is that you're actually going to be teaching a credit course at Southern Methodist University. You've taught all your life. Is it important to teach for credit? Well, the reason I'm doing it is twofold. First of all, because I enjoy corrupting young people. <laughs> um, so that should be interesting. I also, though, want to find out from the inside what universities are doing and what they're thinking is when it comes to teaching people about computers, programming, all that kind of stuff. 
I see the results of what they do, but I really want to find out the, the reasoning behind it. So one of the things I'm really excited about is just the kind of more collegial aspect of it, being able to chat with other, quote, professors, not that I'm on, and just talk it through that way. So uh, for me, it's going to be very much a learning experience. I also want to know, I have some theories about teaching programming that I want to experiment with uh, on this poor, hapless class and uh, <laughs> just you know, see whether or not any of them actually work out. I think that the class members, if they know in fact you're teaching it, are going to be absolutely thrilled to have you as their professor. Well, yeah, I don't know. I've had emails along the lines of, you know, like this is, it's supposed to be an advanced application development class, and I've had people emailing me saying things like, this sounds great, I want to be in your class, or I'm in your class, and oh, by the way, do I have to be able to program? Uh-oh. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're working through some of those issues. Speaking of corrupting minds, is there something, and it, it, please don't be offended if I call you the 60-something Dave Thomas, you're pretty close, so am I. Is there some advice that the 60-something Dave Thomas would give the 20-something Dave Thomas? Or in other words, what career advice can you offer this next generation coming up? The first thing I'd say is that past performance is no indicator of future returns. <laughs> So nothing I said to my 20-year-old self would be relevant to, my, to, my, to a new 20-year-old. I don't think in terms of the, the industry specifically, apart from, no, that's not true. That's not true. I think there is one thing that is really important that everybody should think about. And that's something I would definitely say to my 20-year-old self. And that is, the, what we do in this industry, by and large, is actually very difficult. And it's very challenging, very demanding. People go home from a day of coding, and they're physically tired. It's a tough thing to do. It is. It's stressful, and it has sometimes some really big consequences. It's a, a job with a lot of responsibility at times. The bridge can fall down. The bridge can fall down, yep. and it happens a lot. And in that kind of environment, you got to ask yourself, why am I putting myself through this? And the only answer that makes any sense at all is because I enjoy it. You're going to be sitting there spending eight, ten hours a day doing something. And that's one hell of a, sorry, one heck of a waste oh, of you can, life. Oh, you can say hell, I know, you can I say know. hell I was, Dave. I was just teasing. <laughs> yeah. I was just teasing. That's one, yeah. It's a hell of a waste of a life. Yes. You know, if you're sitting there doing it simply because it's the job your parents told you you should do or something, you know? Right. So I think the biggest advice anybody can receive at this point is do it because it's fun. And when you make decisions, make decisions on the basis of what's going to be the most enjoyable. Yeah. Uh, I think that you can easily say, oh, I've got to move here to get more money or whatever else. If you really want long-term to get value, then don't focus that way. I mean, yeah, you need enough money to live and you know, buy your toys, but ultimately what you want is to have a life that's, that's fun and full. You've, in fact, gotten to one of the reasons why I started this podcast was I was frankly jealous of those people who seemed to have these really great jobs, but they were all predicated on this notion of, 
they fundamentally really enjoyed them. I mean, you were the third of of a whole series that I'm going to be doing. And the first two, one was a drone pilot, which sounds very exciting. And the second is an Olympic class decathlete who spent 13 years as a professional athlete. And the emerging pattern is they just love, love what they do. And I think that's going to be something that's going to be evident in all of these people who have these wonderful jobs of one sort or another is that it's rarely going to be, well, it it pays well. It's going to be, I just totally in love with the process and doing it. And I, I would say the corollary of that is actually don't love what you do, but do what you love. Right. And right. That, I, I think, and the second side of that is that in order to be able to do that, you probably, when you're 20 years old, uh, I was different. I, I, was, I found my passion earlier, but most people at college age honestly do not know what their passion is, right? They know that maybe they're supposed to become a lawyer or whatever it might be, but they probably have not yet found their true passion. Right. And the advice to find that passion, I think, is the one thing that we don't stress enough to our, to our kids. We need to be saying to them, the years between 21 and 28 or something like that, it doesn't matter what you do, right? It's not going to be the pivot point of your life. It's going to be when you experiment. It's when you go out there and you try things. Or right, change your job once a year until you find something that you think is really, really cool. And then go on from there. Right, you don't have to make a decision when you're 21 years old as to what you'll be the rest of your life. What do you want to be when you grow up? Well, flexible is the answer. You know, I think a really important point, no one's going to keep the same career all their lives. They're all going to be changing around doing different stuff. So don't start when you're young with that assumption. Did, did anybody give you that advice when you were 20? I mean, what was the best advice that you ever received when you were in that 20-something category? And did you know it was good advice at the time, and did you pay attention to it? Yeah, actually, the first year after I left college, and I was working with a small consultancy, and we were talking to the client for what was promising to be the biggest project we had yet. So this was like a, a pre-sale call. And the company was, it was actually that Kobo runtime system I was talking about. Mm-hmm. And the guy, the managing director of this company, and they were already an established international software company. He said something in a meeting that was patently ridiculous. And I just couldn't help it. And I just said, no, that's not true. Blah, blah, blah. You know, and I, I went off and sort of like, afterwards, in the car back, I, I, I kind of said to, to the owner of, of my company, Les, I said, oh, I'm really, really sorry. I, I kind of like went off a bit there. I didn't really mean to do that. I know that was kind of wrong. He said, no. He said, that is actually what you're being paid to do, hmm. right? What they want is somebody who is going to push them in directions that they weren't otherwise going to take. Otherwise, what good are we to them? He also then said, but you could have been a bit more polite. Uh, <laughs> right, right. But, <laughs> right. But, um, but that actually, I think, as advice goes, is, is that really did, uh, it changed my life, became a little bit more polite. But it also told me that it was okay not to just do what you're told. That 
part of the job of being a grown-up is to have a certain responsibility, and that means having certain opinions, and that means telling people what they are. If you believe that someone is wrong and they are not going to change, then you kind of have a responsibility to yourself not to go along with it, right? To, to maybe even walk away. You have to have your own beliefs in order to add value. If you look back on your career so far, um, as you say, you're not retired really, and could do just one thing differently, what would it have been and why, why would you have done it differently? I don't know if you're going to leave the pregnant silence in there. Um, Probably. I, good. I think you should do because <laughs> it's, it's uh, uh, there are so many things I would have done differently. I think maybe, uh, this isn't like the one thing, but it's kind of the most recent thing. The way I describe starting up the Pragmatic Bookshelf is pretty accurate in that it was kind of like, you know, hey, let's form a band. Get an arrangement. Right. And we didn't really think through enough about what we were actually creating. So we knew that we wanted to, to publish these. Well, what we really wanted to do was to help developers get better. And to do that, we decided to publish books. That was fine. And we were very successful doing it. And it's it's been good to me. But in terms of creating a business that actually has value, it's actually quite hard to point to the pragmatic bookshelf and say, okay, you're worth this much. Because fundamentally, all of our assets are expiring assets, uh, with a few exceptions. And so what we're doing is we're constantly producing new books, selling them, moving on. The only real valuation that people are going to see in us is our turnover. That's so far from the truth, because the real thing about us is that our our value is in our editors and in our philosophy and in our tools. And the fact that if you were like a large publisher, if you could take some of this stuff on and bring it in board, it would double your productivity or whatever else. That's our value. But because we didn't think about that up front and we didn't package it that way, then it's kind of frustrating sitting on this, you know, this wonderful thing, thinking no one's going to get to see that because we messed up with the way we, we structured it. Um, so I guess if I was going to do anything differently, I would try to structure the bookshelf to make it more obvious that the things that we were doing were effectively a product that we were then using to create our own books. Well, the term that popped into my head was process. It was a, a means by which you got from vague ideas in somebody's head to actionable material. So it was a process is, is the way I would think of it. If somehow you could have profited from being able to protect that process in some way, that's the underlying value of, of pragmatic. Yeah. Yes, I think. But the process implies it's kind of mechanical. Right. And I think there's a bit more to it than that. I don't know. I could go on about this for a long time. It's a, it's a difficult question because fundamentally this entire idea of where the value is, is is kind of totally ephemeral. But with my programming hat on, it kind of upsets me that we didn't re refactor that side of the business out better. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting terminology that you choose. You'd almost, again, think of it as, you know, you're, not only your books are software, the process was software almost exclusively. 
Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. Dave, we're getting to the end of our time now. So you've done a lot of interviews over the years. Is there is there any one question that you've always wanted to be asked and never have been? If so, here's your chance. All right. Um, well, the question I, I keep waiting to be asked by interviewers is, where should we send the check? Where do you send the check as in to me? Yeah. No, no, no. All the way around. He said, what question would you like you to ask oh, me? Oh, okay. I right? see. Right. Where, so, okay. I'm with you now. Right. Okay. <laughs> I'm with you now. Yeah. No, um, I think I, I just like doing it because, you know, I was talking about the inner tennis and the way that when you speak things aloud and listen to yourself saying them, you kind of like think about them in a different way. And quite often I find myself during these these discussions actually rethinking some of the things that are kind of implicit in the way I do stuff and going, that's not true anymore. Or, oh, you know, I should do that differently. And so I'm, I actually learn a whole bunch every time I open my mouth like this. So really, I just like, I just appreciate the opportunity to, to warble on and on. It's been fascinating, Dave. I mean, you have been incredibly generous with your time, and I could go on for hours. I know that you don't have that kind of time, and maybe somewhere down the road, as things have evolved, we'll get another opportunity. But today's discussion has just been an eye-opener for me and very informative, and I think our show's listeners are just going to be fascinated by the things that you've had to say. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with the show's listeners? Oh, Lord. No, not really. I mean, I think... My big closing line is always remember to have fun. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the one I'll keep repeating until I die. I, I have one more question. All right. What's the deal with the garden gnome? The garden gnome. Um, <laughs> so at one point, I needed a placeholder image for something. I can't remember what it was. And I had that little garden gnome sitting on my desk because someone had given it to me, you know, as one of those kind of like, what do you get the guy who doesn't really like things for Christmas kind of thing? Right, you know? sure. So sure. I had that sitting on my desk, and I just took a picture of its face and used that as the placeholder. That was about it for a long time. And then in the Pragmatic Bookshelf, we did a lot of our uh, – we had this kind of running joke about having a team of gerbils in the background. I remember reading that. Right, the, 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 the gerb. In fact, that's found its way into the user interface somewhere. Oh, it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 The, the you, gerbils you like, are in the back producing your copy of the book. That kind of thing. Something. That's like right. That. Yeah, that's right. Right. And every now and then, you'll actually get an email from one of the gerbils saying you have a book ready and this kind of stuff. Right. Um, so that was kind of cool, and I kind of felt that when I went independent uh, of the bookshelf, I needed to kind of like you know move beyond the gerbil. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I looked at my garden gnome and said, you're it. <laughs> well, that harkens back again to your English uh, heritage, because I think garden gnomes are a lot more popular there than they are here. They are. And not the joke item that they are here, to a large well, degree. Well, yeah, I mean, they are a little bit. But yeah. yeah, I mean, it's still, and the other thing is, it actually looks remarkably like my mother, but don't tell her, okay? Oh, okay. <laughs> Well, Dave, thanks again. This has been absolutely wonderful, and I really appreciate you coming on the Work Not Work show. This is going to make for an absolutely dynamite release that will be out in the next week or so. I really appreciate the opportunity, and uh, i got to tell you, this has all been not work. So thank you. Excellent. Thank you, Dave. I appreciate it.
that's it for this third and final part of our interview with Dave Thomas, to whom I once again extend my thanks for being our guest on the Work Not Work show. Our website is worknotwork.show, and parts one and two of this interview, as well as all of the show's other interviews, can be found on iTunes. Simply look for Work Not Work in the podcast section. And we're on Twitter, of course, at Work Not Work. If you are somebody who has turned your passion into a profession or know somebody who has, please get in touch with us. We would love to hear from you. We also look forward to hearing your feedback about this or any other episode of the Work Not Work show. The show was written, produced, and hosted by me, Terence C. Gannon, and is wholly owned by Interlog Inc. of Calgary, Alberta, Canada. All rights are reserved. Our theme music is Working for Friday from the Lionfish Music Group located in beautiful Brooklyn, New York. Special thanks to my lovely wife, Michelle, for your continued support and your infinite patience. Finally, thank you, our audience, for supporting Work Not Work, the show about people who have turned their passion into their profession. <laughs>